Welcome to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will feature the center's equity fellows, national scholars from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. Each episode will focus on a topic relevant to ensuring equitable access and participation in quality education for historically marginalized students, specifically in the areas of race, sex, national origin and religion, and at the intersection of socioeconomic status. My name is Courtney Malden, and I'm here today with Dr. Tara Chambers, and we'll be discussing her work on supporting high-achieving students of color by reducing racial opportunity cost. Dr. Chambers, could you give us a bit of your, just your background and your um, areas of interest in research? Sure. So I'm an associate professor of K-12 educational leadership at Michigan State University, but my research uh, interests really align with um, post- Brown decision, um, K-12 educational policy, and urban educational leadership. Um, I'm also very invested in issues of social justice and equity, um, and a lot of my research takes a qualitative approach. Wonderful. So today we'll be discussing how to best support high-achieving students of color, but we'll specifically look at Dr. Chambers, her framework of reducing racial opportunity costs to understand how we can actually do that. Um, So Dr. Chambers, would you just provide an overview of the racial opportunity cost framework and also just where this term came from, its genesis, and um, a little bit of historical background? Yeah, no, of course. So um, I mentioned that um, you know, a lot of my research has this historical lens. Um, it's deeply steeped in this historical perspective. Um, the way I see it, a lot of our contemporary educational issues, especially those things that relate to students of color, are um, still very connected to the desegregation era and the Brown decision specifically. Um, so in most of the research that I do, I retain this um, perspective. On the one hand, um, you know, obviously the Brown decision was good, it ended segregation, um, but there were a lot of ways that uh, we didn't address these systemic or structural issues related to the treatment of students of color, which has led to compounding issues related to um, tracking, um, disciplinary issues, Mm -hmm. disproportionate gifted, Um, and special education placements, all kinds of things related to how students of color are treated um, in schools. And this racial opportunity cost work stems from that same kind of historical approach. Um, So, you know, I was very interested in um, the treatment of students of color with respect to tracking, right? And I was doing work, um, research around the treatment of students of color, but I kept coming back to this issue of how um, students, the high achieving students in particular, were navigating these school environments um, and kind of the costs that they were incurring um, as, a, as a result. So this led to the project, um, the Racial Opportunity Cost Project, which involved 18 African-American and Latinx students. They were high achieving. And um, I was interested in hearing more about the costs that they incurred Um, working to achieve academic success in these racialized dominant norm spaces 
Um, but I'm particularly interested in looking at what's happening at the school or institutional level that's influencing these students of color how do they, and how they respond to this environment. Um, so in the model, I have these institutional factors or school factors, which I'll talk about probably in a little bit, and then how they in influence the individual student. But then there are also two other aspects to the model. One is intersectional factors. I'm obviously very focused on the racialized implications, but there are other aspects to students' identities that matter very much. Mm -hmm. Gender, um, their sexual orientation, gender identity, um, you know, all of these things, language, mm -hmm. all of, the, and so that's kind of taken into account with this idea of intersectional factors and how all of those different identities um, play a role in how students experience the school environment. And then on the other side, I have what I call capacity factors. And these are things that are external to the school, but influence um, a student's capacity to successfully navigate the school environment. So one um, could be the support of family and friends, could be uh, mentoring programs, could be internal factors like resilience. Um, those, those all come into play with these um, capacity factors. Okay. So that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, what the racial opportunity cost framework looks like. Okay, great. So you use this term um, that I think educators and even myself are curious about knowing how you define it. So how do you define the term racialized dominant norm space? And alongside that question, how do students of color exist within this type of space? Yeah, I get that question a lot. Because um, it sounds scary, racialized, dominant norm space, right? <laughs> um, but really what I mean is that there are all kinds of ways that we expect smart students to arrive at school, right? And so there are objective measures of success. We could say test scores or grades to the degree that we could agree. <laughs> that those are objective, but certainly more objective than other things, like how a student talks or behaves. Mm -hmm. um, those are subjective measures. The problem right. is that we conflate the two. And so we think that smart students dress a particular way, speak a particular way, behave mm -hmm. a particular way. Um, and those are the expectations that we get, that we put on um, all students. And they are racially coded in the sense that those expectations are aligned with um, typically white middle-class expectations um, around speech, behavior, um, dress, those kinds of things. So that's what I mean by racialized dominant norm spaces. Okay, great. That's very helpful. So what are some of the costs that you've identified for high-achieving students of color in schools, and how do these manifest? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, across the study, all of the students reported feeling some um, amount of racial opportunity costs, some more than others, right? But all could kind of identify with the idea um, of it. So um, in the analysis, the cost fell into three primary categories, psychosocial costs, community costs, and representation costs. So psychosocial costs are um, things like students feeling very isolated and alone, um, questioning whether they were smart enough to be in the high track classes, you know, kind of questioning their racial identity and whether they had a space there. Those are the psychosocial costs. Yeah. The community costs are 
um, feeling disconnected from their racial community. Sometimes it was their family, sometimes the larger racial community, but the sense that moving closer to aligning with these school norms, these white middle-class expectations, sometimes met, made them move further away from their racial community and wow. the expectations from, you know, from their home. Mm -hmm. And then representation costs has two kind of aspects to it. On the one hand, it's this feeling of obligation of representing for other African-American or Latinx students in high track classes. Like if I'm taking this AP calculus class and I don't do well, well, then they're not going to let anyone else, no other black students try to take this class, right? right. So feeling that extra burden. Um, but another aspect of it was this kind of like a hyper scrutiny or a heightened sense of being on display, um, of having every move kind of criticized. Mm -hmm. The example I use is um, one of the students, Michaela, said that one day she dropped a pencil and she, she dropped something and she was like, oh, it ain't broke. And then this conversation that ensued where her classmates were like mocking her basically like, oh, is it broken? And she kept saying, oh, it ain't broke. And then it wasn't until afterwards that she didn't realize why they were laughing at her. Mm -hmm. She realized that they were making fun of her for using Ebonics. And so from that point, like she was always making sure that she spoke properly. Mm -hmm. Again, what does properly mean? Does it, you know, right, right. Um, but that is kind of hyper scrutinized sense of being on display. So those are the three categories of racial opportunity cost. Okay. So you shared um, a lot of detail about the representational cost and the psychosocial cost. I'm also interested, in, could you give an example of how the um, community cost would manifest yeah. in, the, in the classroom? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. It's um, a little bit harder to understand, but um, part of it is about the research design too, because you know these were high achieving students. We made the decision to focus on college students who are in their first and second year of college at these two private elite colleges. Um, and so these students were talking about their high school experiences primarily, but also about a little bit about their college experiences. Um, but a lot of them talked about the, these costs in terms of connection to family starting in high school but becoming as exacerbated when they went to college. So, um, you know, one student talked about, we were talking about code switching, right? Being able to talk and move from one um, language to like to another. Mm -hmm. um, and how for him, he wasn't able to code switch. He wasn't able to, you know, move back into the, um, the kind of language norms of his community. So when he would go home, even though he felt very isolated at his college campus, when he would go home, um, you know, his, he, he, there was an example where a family member was like, where are you from? Or not a family member, someone in the community. Mm -hmm. was like, where are you from? And he was like, well, I'm from here. But he wasn't recognized as being from there because he didn't speak the way that people in this community um, speak. And there was a, another example with, a, with one of the focus groups where the students were talking among themselves about this issue and how it's devastating because they don't realize that they're becoming disconnected from their family until they go away and they come back. And when mm -hmm. they come back, um, you know, these two young women were talking about um, how, you know, how devastating it was uh, to, to feel, to come home and want to be embraced, but instead being kind of hit in the face with this sense of like, oh, like I'm really feeling disconnected in ways mm -hmm. I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the community costs. Thank you. 
So you've identified the cost to us. What steps can educators take to lessen these costs for students of color? Yeah, this is really the heart of the issue, right? Mm -hmm. like, um, and that's the purpose of this uh, racial opportunity cost model is actually to focus on and empower folks to reduce the racial opportunity costs. And there, are, the good news is that there are lots of things that we can do mm -hmm. at the institutional level. And so there are five school factors that um, emerged from the research. So the first thing is school norms and values. How are we um, reinforcing students to fit a particular mold of what smartness is supposed to look like, mm -hmm. right? And how can we disrupt those expectations mm -hmm. and say, you know, like one of my students in a prior project talked, he said, um, you know, what's it gonna look like if I pop up in here in my white tee and my Jordans on? Like, they're mm -hmm. gonna kick me right out. Well, why does he have that perspective? Mm -hmm. And where did that, you know, where did that become cultivated and how can we disrupt it so that students feel like they can be smart in all kinds of different ways? Right, like an AP student doesn't look one way. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, the second school factor is school community and belonging, um, you know, helping feeling students feel like they belong in, in every place in the school. Um, one of the students, a different student talked about, um, this, you know, this feeling alienated um, in a class one day where he was taking a test and there was a question that had to do with sailing, like with boating. He had never been on a boat in his life. He couldn't even tell me what the, pro what the question was about, but he just remembered how um, that question started having him question everything about his like being in the class, right? Like, well, I don't know anything about sailing. Am I supposed to know something? No one else is asking a question about what sailing is so they can answer this question. So clearly they all know what sailing is and I'm the only one. So I don't belong in this class. Maybe I don't belong in these high chart classes. And it just became like this whole um, cascading effect of him questioning his, his ability mm. all behind one question. And the question wasn't even about sailing. You just needed to know about sailing in order to answer the question. Right. right? Yeah. Those are, that's just a really simple example, but obviously had a really profound effect on his overall sense of belonging in the school. Very easy for us to be thinking about how do we, how are we, um, setting up situations like that, how can we make sure that they're open and not mm -hmm. alienating students? Mm -hmm. So the third school factor is having conversations about race and racism. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about is how important it is for students to understand all of these issues, right? Okay. Um, one of the things that came out of the research too is that the students really blamed themselves for mm -hmm. their performance, high performance, and lack of performance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, going back to the tracking work that I was doing. And, you know, Lisa Delpit talks about the culture of power and how, you know, like there are all these rules related to the culture of power. One of them being that we need to teach the rule, you know, we have to teach it. We have to yeah. tell people about it mm -hmm. um, so that they can understand the implications and, um, you know, respond accordingly. Same thing here. Like we need to, like students need to understand what's happening. And I saw the impact of this even through the study as we were, you know, working with these students over time and they were better understanding, um, you know, the work that I was doing, but just also the broader work. They were getting fired up about their experiences and sometimes about how unfair things were, you know, gave them a sense of empowerment, mm -hmm. right? And if they would have had that, if they would have had teachers who were willing to have those conversations, you know, could have reduced a lot of anxiety and racial opportunity costs for them right. along the way. 
Um, so, and unfortunately, a lot of teachers are uncomfortable having those conversations. Mm -hmm. We just have to push past that discomfort. Right. Um, the fourth school factor is tracking and within school segregation. I talked about this earlier and how a lot of the work that I do um, is connected to, de to desegregation and the implications that continue to manifest all of these decades later that we haven't dealt with. All of these are ways that interfere with academic striving at the classroom level. Um, so disrupting tracking, especially the racialized implications of tracking, mm -hmm. is another important aspect, aspect that educators um, can focus on to reduce racial opportunity costs. And then the last school factor is um, teachers and school personnel. Like we, are, we play a really important role in helping students feel like they belong reinforcing open school norms and values, um, creating space where we can talk about race and racism. And we need to take, we need to do that. You mm -hmm. know, unfortunately, there are a lot also ways that we can um, exacerbate these things, right, right, as educators, right? So it's important that we're, we're cognizant every day of the ways that we can um, support students. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Chambers. Yeah. Um, we really appreciate this, and we hope that you all um, can apply this racial opportunity cost framework and its understanding to your own schools. This podcast was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center podcasts, and other resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to a podcast, click on the podcast link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center at Indiana University, is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, S004D11002. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Executive Director Dr. Kathleen King-Torius, Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, Associate Director of Engagement and Partnerships Dr. Tiffany Kaiser, and Instructional and Graphic Designer Dr. Jasur Dagwi for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.